right, tonight uh, we're continuing a series that we've been looking at on uh, Lord's Day evenings. I've entitled it Humanity Creation the Restoration. This is uh, number seven in our series. And I won't take time to review like I have in the past since we just looked at this last week, but basically we began all the way at the beginning. Uh, who are we? We're made in God's image. What does that mean? Um, what happened at the fall of man that was recorded in Genesis chapter 3? What happened to that image? Um, and then how is God restoring that image? How is he uh, redeeming us, as it were, to be once again image bearers of God and do so in a way that honors him? Last week, we looked in particular about how is that image restored in us? What's the process? Can we get uh, more specific? We, we noted that generally God would speak of this in terms of regeneration. He brings new life to us. But that new life is, is lived out. And it's, it's in a process of beholding the glory of God in His Word. And we looked at that passage last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that talks about beholding the glory of God, as it were, in a mirror. And um, remember, there's the, the uh, comparison with Moses in the Old Testament and the glory of the law versus now as new covenant believers in this age, we behold the glory of God in Christ through the word. And as we do, the image of God is progressively restored in us. It's from glory to glory. And so we looked at that <clears throat> last week and said, this is God's plan. Um, God doesn't just zap you and instantaneously make you holy and, and spiritual. It's, it's progressive. There's, uh, it's incumbent upon us to be exposing ourselves to the Word of God, to be uh, looking at Christ in the Word and be taking that in, that we behold that glory in order to be changed into that image. But maybe you even went out of the service last week and you said, you know what, I, I want that. I really desire to be changed into the image of Christ and to be growing in grace. But you say, but the moment I, I, I try, the moment I, I really desire to do this, it seems like I fall. Like I can go out of here on a Sunday and say, yes, I want God to change me. But Monday when I get up, it's like I trip all over myself again. And so maybe you're asking the question, why? Why is it such a struggle? Why do you and I struggle to image God accurately, even though we really want to? And more so, why does that struggle seem even greater the more I grow? The more I learn about God and the more I'm exposed to His Word, it seems like I'm just more aware of this struggle. Have you ever felt that way? Well, I think you're in good company. I've just seen this. Nope, that's it. I want this slide right here. You ever heard of this guy, David Brainerd? There's the dates that he lived. He was a young man when he died. Uh, Brainerd was a missionary to American Indians. 
He um, initially had gone to seminary. He actually studied at Yale College, and he was studying for ministry there. He was uh, an earnest student, uh, loved the Lord, wanted to serve the Lord. But it was at a time in our nation's history when George Whitfield was preaching in this area, and George Whitfield was used of God to bring new life to people. Religion had become uh, cold and academic and hard and really unbelieving. And Whitfield was calling people to repentance, to, to faith and new life. And Brainerd had gotten hold of that. And he was in this academic setting at Yale. And he understood what Whitfield was preaching and the truth of the gospel. And on one occasion, Brainerd had said of his college tutor, who was a president or a pastor in the area, he said that that man had no more grace than a chair. And that got him in trouble. In fact, it got him kicked out of Yale because he wouldn't apologize. <laughs> and the funny thing was that he was right. So Brainerd gets kicked out of Yale, but he decides that God has called him to ministry and that he is going to give his life to ministering to American Indians. He did this mostly in Delaware in the middle colonies, uh, but also up in this area for a while. If you read Brainerd's diary, I commend it to you. You should read it. Everybody should read it. He just bears his soul and says, here's what was going on in his heart and mind as he sought to minister to these American Indians. But here's an entry from his diary. Uh, it's dated Thursday, May 13th. And Brainerd said this of himself. Saw so much of the wickedness of my heart that I longed to get away from myself. I never before thought there was so much spiritual pride in my soul. I felt almost pressed to death with my own vileness. Oh, what a body of death is there in me. Lord, deliver my soul. Could not find any convenient place for retirement and was greatly exercised. Here's a man a man consecrated to the Lord, serving the Lord, that we would look up to and we look back on and read his diary and say, this man seems to be a spiritual giant. And then he writes this about himself. What, what's going on? What's the answer to this? Well, let me give you a more modern example. Recognize any of these faces? Maybe you do. You can see the names of these five men, Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, Peter Fleming, Roger Udarian, and Ed McCauley. These are five missionaries, uh, men, who were earnest in giving the gospel to the Aka Indians in South America. And uh, if you've ever read through, uh, in, through the Gates of Splendor, this is their story about them actually literally giving their lives by trying to get into this Indian tribe in South America and give them the gospel. And upon their first initial contact, really, in person, uh, the people in that tribe killed each of these men. But if you read that story and you look back and you hear some of these names, we think of these men in terms of these are spiritual giants, right? These are young men that, that gave all they had for the cause of Christ. These are, are people that we would look up to. 
One of those men in particular, Roger Udarian, you see him there, he's uh, the second from the right. Um, Roger, uh, before he actually went with these other men to try to reach the Aka people, he was a missionary, and, uh, but he struggled where he was as a missionary. He struggled in the work, he and his family struggled, and Roger said this in his diary. He said, I'm about ready to call it quits. There's no future here for us, and the wisest thing is to pull stakes. I wouldn't support a missionary such as I know myself to be, and I'm not going to ask anyone else to. The issue is personal, and I'm discouraged about finding any satisfactory solution. Again, here's a guy that we would look up to and say, this guy seems to be a real spiritual man, and yet in his own heart he says, I'm not worthy of anybody's support. I'm a miserable missionary. He says, I, it's in me. I'm the problem. Okay, how are we to assess this? I'm giving you just a sample. Christian history is full of things like this. Are these men hypocrites? They obviously have struggles of soul, and they're obviously at times overwhelmed by it, and yet they're serving in ministry. Are they hypocrites? Are they immature? That they just need to grow, and maybe they'll overcome these things, and they'll get to the point where they don't have to wrestle with these things anymore. I think we've already concluded in just reading this that, that these men actually demonstrate a great measure of Christian maturity and sacrifice for the cause of Christ. So what's the answer? What are they dealing with? I would suggest to you that what they're dealing with is their traitor within. Something that we all deal with an internal traitor that in many ways inhibits and discourages our growth into the image of Christ. What is this internal traitor? Well, the Bible talks about it. It actually gives it a name. Let's look at it all first at, at this traitor's identity. I want you to look at Ephesians chapter 2 because it's particularly the Apostle Paul that identifies this and uses particular language about this traitor within. And we read of it in Ephesians chapter 2. And Paul writes in verse 1, and you were dead, he's speaking to believing people, but he's saying, think of it, before you were believers, you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which, in those sins, you once walked, following the course of this world, Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now notice verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our what? Passions of our... Everybody say it out loud together. Passions of our... There you go. 
the Bible identifies this internal traitor with this term. It calls it flesh. Now, when you hear flesh, what do you think of? You think of physical body. And the term is often to be understood that way in the New Testament. Um, For instance, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1 about people wanting to make a show in the flesh. And and it's talking about uh, people in, in, in physical ways wanting to demonstrate what they can do. And... Uh, That is frequently the way that this term is used in the New Testament, but it's not exclusively used that way. For instance, when you look at this, here's what we read in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3. It says that we once all lived in the passions of our flesh. So it's talking about this flesh, whatever it is, and it's saying it has, the word passions there is the word translated elsewhere as emotions. It has these kinds of feelings, as it were. And so it's not saying, well, it's just your physical material body has feelings. No, that's not the case. There's something else to this thing, flesh. It's not just purely physical material. It has feelings. And not only that, but look at the rest of verse 3. It says, we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. And in my copy of the scripture, I have a little number one next to body, and it takes me to the margin, and it says there's another way to translate that word. And what is it? Flesh. It's the same word. It's the word sarkos in Greek. So what this says, when it's talking about this thing that is the flesh, it says it has It has passions, it has feelings or desires, or or rather feelings or emotions. And then it says, and and before you were saved, you carried out these desires of the flesh. And that word is a word that refers to choices or will. So here the Bible is talking about this thing called flesh. And it has certain feelings or emotions. It also has a will. It makes choices. It desires certain things. Okay? And here's what else the Bible says about this. Go to Romans chapter 8. And what you'll notice is the majority of references that we look at tonight are from the writings of Paul because what I says, it, it's Paul that really ferrets this out for us, this thing called the flesh. Look at Romans chapter 8, and again, we're just going to drop right into the context on a number of these things, but we're just kind of putting the pieces together. Look at Romans chapter 8, and look at verse 6. Paul writes and says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Our translation says mind that is set on the flesh, and they're kind of adding some information there. Really, if you read this in the original, it talks about mind of the flesh. And when we talk about the mind of something, what are we talking about? Let me put it to you this way. 
We've seen that the flesh has feelings. It feels certain ways. The flesh also has a desire. It makes certain choices. What are we learning about the flesh here? It thinks. There's a cognition to it. Well, what does this flesh think? What does it desire? How does it feel? The reason I took us through that little exercise is because here's what we need to understand about this thing that the Bible calls the flesh. The flesh is you. It's not something outside of you that's separate from you. It's not some sort of inclination. The flesh has personhood. How do you know something's a person? Someone is a person. It has these characteristics at least. Feelings, intent, thinking, cognition. And the Bible says there's this thing called the flesh that we have that has all of those things. And what it's saying is, Your flesh has personhood. It is you. It's not something separate from you that you can blame everything on. It is you. Okay? In fact, let me just make this very clear. Look at Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, look at verse 24. We read these words. Again, Paul's writing. He says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. In what sense is he using flesh? With its what? Passions and desires. Those feelings and those choices. And he says, Those who belong to Christ, when it comes to this flesh thing, it's been crucified. Okay? Now look at chapter 2 and verse 20 of Galatians. What has been crucified according to 5.24? The flesh has been crucified. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, a familiar verse to you, I'm sure, says, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, and there he uses flesh in the sense of physical body. The life that I'm living now physically on this earth, I live by the grace of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What Paul is equating in Galatians is this. I have been crucified with Christ. When that happened, my flesh was crucified. The point I'm making is this. The flesh is you. It's not something outside of you. It's you. So whenever we give in to sin in our life, whenever we are faced with challenges to image God, it is not simply the devil made me do it. It's not simply the temptation of the world was too great. We should come to the conclusion that ultimately there is something about me that has yet fallen. There's something about me that still isn't quite right. Okay, well, let's talk about this thing. What's the nature of this thing called the flesh? What does it do? Well, look back at Romans chapter 7. Again, we're, we're dropping right into some context, but I think it's easy enough to follow along if I just read 
Look at Romans 7 and notice verse 14. Paul writes, For we know that the law is spiritual. And by that, he's actually referring to God's law. Think of uh, even that old covenant. He's saying there's nothing wrong with that law. The law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. What he's saying is that there's no problem with God's law. What he's been arguing for is this, is that I didn't know I was a sinner until God's law came and showed me how sinful I was. And what he's saying here is it's not the law's problem. The problem is there's something in me that doesn't like that. Verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And stop right there at the end of verse 17. Notice he's gone from talking about flesh to talking about indwelling sin. And I just want to make this point at this, at this juncture is that he's going to use those terms interchangeably. When he talks about indwelling sin, he's talking about the flesh and vice versa. Okay? Now look at verse 18. Uh, verse 17, he said, sin dwells within me. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my what? Okay, you see what he's doing. He's saying, here's me. And he says, when it comes to the law of God, I'm condemned. And, and sin dwells in me. But now he narrows it and he says, but what I'm talking about where sin dwelling is in what part of me? My flesh. This thing called flesh. Right? And so the nature of this traitor is that it's located in his flesh. It's nothing good. In fact, look at chapter 8 and verse 7. Paul says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Indeed, what? It what? It can't. It cannot. Now, here's what Paul is saying. And when I say this initially, you might find this very discouraging, but stick with me. Here's what Paul's saying. There is something inside of you, even as a believing person, that is hostile to God, doesn't submit to God. It can't. And it's you. Paul's actually saying, you will never be rid of your flesh in this life. How do you feel about that? It will always be with you. No matter how dedicated you are, no matter how earnest you may be, no matter even how much exposure you have to God's word, he's saying in this life, your flesh is always with you. Now, you may hear that and you think, that's really discouraging. I mean, if Brainerd struggles with his flesh to the point where he says, I can't take it anymore, 
What hope is there for me? And all I want to do is I want to encourage you with this thought. Because oftentimes this is what happens. People realize this about their nature. Earnest believing people realize this, that there's this traitor within. And they say, if this traitor's within, then I must not be a true believer. Because a true believer wouldn't feel this way, wouldn't think this way, wouldn't choose this way, and therefore because this exists, I must not be saved. And all I want to tell you is the Bible comes back and says, no, because you feel a struggle, there's something else in you too. Does that make sense? This is exactly what the scripture is saying. That struggle means there's something different in you than those people we read in Ephesians chapter 2 that were completely given over to those passions, over to those desires. So what are we to know about this flesh? It'll be with us. It's not subject to the law of God. It cannot be. All right? Does that mean I must live under its power? Finally tonight, I want to look at turning on this traitor. I want you to look at Romans chapter 6. Here's what you need to understand about this thing called the flesh. Romans chapter 6 says there's some things you need to know about it. Look at verse 3 of Romans 6. Do you not know? Look at verse 6. We know. Look at verse 9. And we know. And so when it comes to your dealing with this internal traitor, the first thing God says to you is you need to know some things about it. And here are some truths about this thing called the flesh. Romans chapter 6, look at verse 17. He says, but thanks be to God that you who were once, what? Slaves of what? Of sin. Now, remember what we said here? Paul uses interchangeably these ideas of sin and flesh. And so what he's saying is, at one time when you were an unbeliever, you were entirely captive to this flesh, a slave to it. But now, look at verse 22. But now that you have been, what, set free from this thing, okay? Set free. doesn't mean that it's been eradicated, but what it means is this. The flesh has now been dethroned. Remember Ephesians chapter 2 again, Paul says, At one time before you had come to Christ by faith, you were entirely given over to your flesh. You had, you had no other option but to do what it desired, to feel the way it feels, and think the way it thinks. 
But he says, but now something has happened in you that has broken that bondage and you're free from it. You don't have to obey your flesh. And this is what he's saying. The flesh has been dethroned in the life of the believer and you are no longer subject to it. You have a choice. You say, well, how do I know that's true of me? Well, let me just give you this little test. Remember we read in Romans 8 where it says that the flesh is not subject to the law of God. It cannot be. In fact, it's hostile to God. It's at enmity with God. Well, have you ever sat in a service like this or heard preaching somewhere else and somebody opens the Bible and they're explaining to you who God is and what God has said in his word and it just cuts you to the heart. You are so convicted. You know God is speaking to you and he's putting his finger on something in your life. And you feel that conviction and you feel that weight, but you embrace it. You're not fighting against it and saying, I'll give you a hundred reasons why that's not true. That doesn't apply to me. He misapplied that word. That's not the right tense of that verb. That's not right. But in your heart, it says, God is right. I'm wrong. I need to change. You know what that is? That's a flesh that's there, but it's dethroned. The hostility toward God has been set aside. Even though this flesh wants to raise its ugly head, there's something in me that says, no, it's wrong. I'm wrong. God is right. And this is, this is what Paul describes in this passage, right? Look at, look at chapter 7 in the book of Romans and verse 21. Paul says, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, what happens? Evil lies close at hand. When I want to do the right thing, there is this flesh still in me. But look at verse 22. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of my sin that dwells in my members. He says, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this? And he's describing this kind of conflict that, that he wants to do the right thing and he wants to serve God and do what's right. But at the very same time, there's this sinister part of him that raises its ugly head and there's this war going on. Now, have you ever felt that? Of course you have. I feel it every time it comes across my mind to share the gospel with somebody. And I want to give somebody a tract or I want to open my mouth and try to get into a discussion with them about the gospel of Christ. And the moment that I want to do that in the desire of my heart, you know what's there? It's this thought, you're going to make a fool out of yourself. You're, you're going to turn them away from the gospel because you're going to mess it up. How can you give the gospel? You just talked mean to your wife the other day. 
there's something there that when I want to do the right thing, it's wanting to pull back. Beloved, I just want you to know, it, it, to me, it's comforting that the Bible tells us what's going on. It's not discouraging that, oh, yeah, this happens. It's encouraging that God says, that's exactly what happens. And I've told you that's what happens. So don't be surprised. Our flesh is always a part of us, and, and we grow weary, and we grow defeated because of our flesh. And again, sometimes we get to the point where we think, well, if I were really an earnest Christian, if I were really consecrated to God, I wouldn't have this flesh. No! In fact, I would suggest to you, the closer you get to God and walk with God, the more aware of your flesh you are. The more you begin to recognize how really this thing is me. Let me illustrate this. I'm, maybe not all of you like this, but it's true. I am a hunter. I'm not very good at it, but I like to do it. One of the things I love to do is to hunt turkeys. I, I like to eat them, too. They're pretty good. And in the springtime, uh, I will be looking for a gaggle of turkeys and try to find where they're located and I get all dressed up where you can't see me in camouflage and sit down somewhere, and I have this little call I put in my mouth, and I try to call them. I usually set up a little decoy. It looks like a hen, and it's time to make little turkeys, right? And so you put the hen out there, and you're trying to get the boyfriends into the hen, right? And so I'm, I'm calling, but, but here's what happens in turkey season, is when you start calling, usually the first birds that are going to come in are something called jakes. And jakes are year-old turkeys, male turkeys. And jakes are just dumb. And they're like, they hear the call, they see the bird, whoo! I mean, they're off and they run right in, and, and typically they mess everything up, right? What I want to do is I'm waiting for that old tom, you know, the big one with nice big spurs and a long beard, but he is really leery. I mean, the littlest thing sets him off. And he's been around the block so many times that he knows what can happen. And he's really, really cautious. And beloved, I would just use that simple illustration to say that's often the way it happens in our lives. When we grow and we mature as believing people, we tend to become more aware of the pitfalls of our flesh and we're more aware of the danger that it poses to us and how we could easily destroy ourselves. And so your awareness of your flesh 
is not so much a sign that you're immature. It actually may be a sign that you are a very mature believer. Because you're leery of it. And you see it more often. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we should beware of these passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. It is a war. It's a war that we're involved in. Where is the help in this warfare? Back to Romans chapter 6. Remember I said, the Bible says you must know certain things. Romans chapter 6, <clears throat> look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his what? Death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. When Paul talks about baptism here, he's not talking about water baptism. This is a baptism into Christ. It's an identification with Jesus Christ. Water baptism is the visible public symbol of that. This is the reality. What he says is, know this, that when you came to faith in Christ, you were placed into Christ, and his death became your death. What did you die to? We've looked at this later in the passage. You died to sin or your flesh. The dominion of sin was broken in your life through your union with Christ. Know that. Now, this is humbling, but you should understand this. You don't sin. I don't sin because I have to. I sin because I want to. And that's what it says. Know that, though. You, you've been made dead to sin. Look at verse 6. And we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. You see that language? So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And verse 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again and death no longer has dominion over him. So just like Christ was raised, we too are raised and will live forever and we are to live in a new way of life, no longer dominated by our flesh and by sin. And so there are certain things that we must know in order to turn on this traitor. There are also certain, certain things that we must consider. Look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that's just coming to that realization that I just pointed out to you, that you don't have to sin, I don't have to sin, I actually choose to sin. Because verse 12 says this, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. And he's talking to believing people. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, in a moment, you can, as a believer, put yourself back under the reign of sin or the reign of your flesh and do what it desires, go according to how it feels, 
think its particular way. You as a believer can do that. You don't have to, but we often do. And so what's the answer? How do I avoid that? How do I put that to death? Well, look at this and we'll be done for tonight. Look at Galatians chapter 5. This is hinted at in Romans 8, but we'll look at it from Galatians 5. And look at verse 16. Paul says, but I say, walk by the what? Okay, spirit. Little s or capital S? Capital S. What does that mean? Holy Spirit. It's saying you, you walk, you keep in step with, some translations say, which is a good translation. You you. You follow the Spirit. And if you do that, you will not gratify the desires of your what? Your flesh. Why not? Verse 17. Because the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, and these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want. And it's describing this, this conflict that takes place within the life of a believer, and it says there is this conflict of my flesh, but thank God I have capital S to counteract that. And it's the Holy Spirit that comes to live within me that reminds me that sin's power is broken, that convicts me of sin itself, encourages me to go to Christ to kill sin, because he paid for it all and enables me to take the sword of the Spirit and live a life of victory. And this is what the Bible calls spiritual warfare, spiritual battle. So in ensuing weeks, we'll have to look more at what is this idea of Walking in the Spirit, not in my flesh. How does he counteract that? And tonight, I just want to make this point that one of the keys to you properly imaging God in dealing with this aspect of your flesh is your relationship with a member of the Godhead. Holy Spirit. What does it mean to walk with Him? Is that something spooky? Am I waiting for Him to talk to me? Am I waiting for Him to impress me in some way? What is that? Because whatever it is, it is key in counteracting the desires of my flesh. And we'll have to look at that in ensuing weeks. Let me close with this word of encouragement, okay? I've said this in several different ways tonight, but I just really want to impress this upon us. A, a Christian, a true child of God, is not somebody who no longer has 
sinful feelings, sinful thinking, sinful desires. Again, many people are confused and they come for counsel and they say, if I were a Christian, I wouldn't feel this way. I wouldn't think this way. I wouldn't want this. And the Bible just comes back and says that's not the case at all. You have a traitor. And it's not subject to the law of God and it won't be until you get to glory. And so I would say this. We get discouraged by the conflict and the struggle. And all I would say is, praise God for the struggle. Right? Pr praise God there's something in me that doesn't want to go down that road. Oh, it's strong and the pull is strong. But there's something in me that says that leads to death. And I would suggest to you, if you have that, that's the greatest assurance that you're a child of God. It's not that you're perfect. It's that you struggle. And you fight. The Spirit has come within you to do battle with your flesh. And you're feeling it. But praise God, He's on your side. And the next time you feel that, just, just thank God that it's there. And praise Him for it. John Owen, famous Puritan, so famously said this. I've seen this on a t-shirt. I think I want to get it. He said, be killing sin. Or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin in the power of the Spirit. Or sin will be killing you. And I think those are good words of encouragement. Well, let's pray together.